I call it the hospitals are like a well-being exchange. <laughs> what do you mean by that? So doctors come in and exchange their well-being for the patients. <laughs> You just, it's just convert. And there's a great conversion rate there. Like one unit of doctor well-being translates to like 100 patients of well-being, but it's just that's the way that it, it runs. Oh, it doesn't sound like a very sustainable business model if you ask me. Well, it's not. If you ask anyone, <laughs> literally anyone with a brain cell could tell you that it's not. Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr. Nina Sue, your friendly neighborhood pediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner, Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland, and sponsored by MedWorld. Welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome podcast. It's really great to have you here, Justin. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Again. So this is round two of yep. recording. So, you know, fingers crossed, uh, this one will actually make it to air. Yep. <laughs> Justin was one of my classmates and one of my colleagues working in medicine as well. But he's now a recovering doctor who's got an interest in education and he's an entrepreneur as well. So since you've left medicine for quite some time now, do you think that you are more busy or less busy? I definitely will have to say that I am less busy busy for sure if you think about busy as like just getting tasks done on a daily basis because when i was working as a doctor i was still running my business at the same time simultaneously but when you're working as a doctor like you get on the ward and as soon as you walk through the door like you've got jobs to do like you're hit in the face sometimes Especially because, you know, like I lived when I was still a house officer, like you're, you're prepping the ward round stuff, nurses wanting you to recharge stuff from the night. So as soon as you walk through the doors, you're busy. Whereas that's not really the pace that I'm operating at now, which I feel is like a lot more healthy. But in terms of actually feeling like the work that I'm doing is productive and actually getting my life to the point where I want it to be, I feel that I'm a lot more productive in that sense now because it feels like my days are more meaningful. Like what I'm actually spending my my time doing is taking a step forward in my life. Because as a doctor, like even though your work is meaningful inherently, sometimes it just feels like you're on the grind. Like yeah. you're not, you don't really see it in the perspective of like, how is this day taking me a step closer to where I want to be? Often it's just, it's just passing the time so I can get this run done with. Or if you're training, it's I'm just getting the hours and I'm getting the exposure in. But really what you need to be doing is I just need to be studying right now. Also, you know, there's all this other sort of stuff going on. Whereas and I feel that's like not a lot of our job, right? It's just so inefficient and it feels like there's nobody that's in the system asking us working on the ground. Hey, what could we do to make your job more efficient? Mm. What could we do to help you help more people in a, in a more meaningful, impactful way? Yeah. And so you're just like plugging holes all day until you finish the day and then you got to start again the next day and it's just ah bonkers. That leads to my next question of what made you <laughs> leave medicine? Essentially what you just said is a big part of it. I've said this before, but when you are a student and you're going through medical school, you don't really have a concept of, well, you don't have a concept of a lot of things. You don't have a concept. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how do you expect someone to make a decision at 17, no, yeah, you really 18? Shouldn't. I'm like, oh, why yeah. did I make that mis- Why did I make that decision? You, you sort of just go through the motions and you're like, oh yeah, there's always that next short-term goal. I'm passing this exam and then I'm graduating and then I'm working. And then when you're working, it's, there's always like that next hurdle that you're setting yourself on. 100%. And, 
And for me, the thing that really flipped the switch in terms of how I perceived how I was spending my time and therefore like the vocation slash career or whatever I was going down was additional duties. Are you talking um, about the extra higher extra, rates extra that we pay, get yeah. if so, we do extra? Right. So you've got a shift and let's say you finished at 5 p.m. and then you get a text saying, hey, there's a whatever available, like another slot. And if you stay till 10.30, you get paid an additional whatever. And that whatever is like, what was it like one and a half times like the normal Something hourly like rate? Yeah. yeah. So comparatively, it's like pretty good. But then after that, you're okay. So would I rather do this shift right now and just ruin my entire week essentially for an additional like, couple hundred bucks. Because we'll basically. already be doing like a shift where we have started at say 7.30 and finished at 10.30. We'll have already done that at yeah, least Yeah, yeah. So week. you've already done that week or you've got one coming up. Yeah. So if it's like Tuesday and you know that your Thursday is one of those shifts and you're thinking, do I want to do that twice? And I think some people outside of medicine don't really understand healthcare workers will get it, but doing a shift, working overtime till 10.30, 11 p.m. in another field is not the same as doing the same hours in medicine because if you're on call for until 10.30 p.m., you're often like barely sitting, constantly moving around. Your oh, brain absolutely. has essentially no rest. I get like a 10,000, 12,000 step count without even trying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I get, I get 2,000 if I try these days. <laughs> so it's just a different mentality. So you're ruining your entire week and you're thinking, well, I got a hundred, couple hundred extra bucks, a few hundred extra bucks for that. And it's okay, that's cool. And I think when you first start, you're like, oh yeah, like a little bit more money. But at the end of the day, like it's not really making much of a dent, but then the impact that it has on your energy and your mental health, and you haven't even recovered from your previous week, let alone, do you want to add to that debt? And so I started thinking, you know, I just don't want to pick up these shifts pretty much ever. That almost sounds like a recipe of exploitation, but anyway, carry on. I was sufficiently brainwashed at the time to think that was acceptable. <laughs> so anyway, look, those are the times that I'll do it. And then I come back the next day and whatever. And then I started thinking like, man, I'm not even willing to pick up that shift when I'm paid one and a half times. So what am I getting paid like right now to do this? And then I started thinking about those times where I wake up in the day and I just think, I don't want to go to work today. I would rather be sick, not even take a fake sickie. I would rather legitimately be sick to stay at home than not go to work. So I started thinking about, this is essentially my life. And yes, when I'm at work, I'm thinking, oh, it's not too bad. Oh, it's okay. Oh, this coffee is quite nice. I made it to the end of the ward round and I get to do a few things during that day that I find meaningful. And like me personally, there wasn't anything in medicine that I personally loved. There were a lot of little things that I thought, oh, it's pretty cool and I liked it. But as a whole, I definitely wouldn't say that the job had anything in it that I felt like I really loved. Often I felt the sense of obligation to myself to try and love something to justify the fact that I was doing it. Earlier on, like in medical school training, I think this is specifically the moment when I was a fourth year medical student and I found out that we have this concept of the 14, 15 hour day. And I thought, no way, that's got to be illegal. And I realized it's not. <laughs> and then at that time I was like, oh no, nah, it's like, it's too late to quit medicine. Like I'm already yeah. like four years in. And Some now cost. that was like, what, eight, nine years ago. And I'm like, now it feels like it's too late. But I know that in five years time, I'm gonna be like, oh, it wasn't too late. I still could change. I know people who have like almost finished like physician training yeah. and then decided, no, I'm just gonna go make wine now. And they're so yeah. happy going and making wine now. You know, oh, that, could, that could still be me. There, there, there's someone working through my program right now who... I think they were in their final year of plastics training. So it's not even physician training. It's, it's like oh, one of the most- Not even physician training. <laughs> hey, no, I was talking about, and this guy's in the US as well. Yeah. And he, I, I can't remember where, where about, so he lives in. It's a pretty big deal to be like your final year of, of plastics training and then to quit. Yeah. I can't remember what they're doing now anymore, but- What no. made them quit? 
Oh, I, I don't know. I, I just know that's his story. I haven't talked yeah. to him in depth. But it's always the same sort of issues. And also people that are in a similar position asking, should I quit medicine? That's a very common question that I get. I get it almost every single day. And it's a very difficult question to answer, not just because of the fact that it's inherently difficult, but because it's obviously very personal. I'm just speaking for myself. I thought it's not a safe pathway for me to continue down if my primary outcome is fulfillment and satisfaction in the work that I'm doing. And a big part of that, like you talked about before, is organizational efficiency. Like I'm efficiently wired in a way and I think about it all the time and I'm seeing all the red tape and how difficult that would be and how slow it would be, like how inefficient it is to create efficiency. Then that also felt like something that was not compatible with Do my you think views. if like the system had changed and the work changed, you'd want to ever come back to medicine? That's actually, that's a good question. I thought about the idea of what if I only did private practice? Because when you're in private practice, you have a lot of control over the clinic. And every doctor knows this, is that when you go to like private hospital and you look at the surgical volume that they're doing, they are churning through cases, literally like five to sometimes 10 times the speed of a public hospital. And so there's obviously a lot more organizational efficiency there. But every time I went to these private clinics and I thought, honestly, it felt really boring to me. I don't want to do 10,000 laparoscopic surgeries a, a year and that's all I do. I don't want to just do like a cataract surgery 40 times oh, a day. You used to and want to do that, didn't you? I never wanted to do just <laughs> that, you know? So like, I, I just thought when you go into private practice, you've got a limited scope. And so a lot of yeah. private private practitioners will do, do is they'll have- Do one thing and do it really good. Yeah. What would you change like within the healthcare system? I don't know if that particular thing, like the thing that really, that that bothered me at that level, I don't think is something that is really changeable necessarily. I think from an organizational perspective, how could public hospitals be a lot more efficient? Well, I think a great step is to actually start thinking about how it can be more efficient (laughs) in the first place. Asking the people who are doing the money, maybe. (laughs) I, under one of the feedback reports, I actually wrote a full analysis because I was involved in business at the time still. So I knew how to think about organizational efficiency. For the hospital? Yeah, for the run that I was in. And I said, look, these are barriers to efficiency that I've noticed. These are the personnel that are there. These are the key stakeholders. These are like the different people on the ground. Here are the opportunities and like the cost-effective implementable alternatives to try to trial out and pilot. And I gave them a whole report on it. And then afterwards, they met up with me and they talked about how the issue is not the organizational efficiency. The issue is those problems wouldn't be there if I was just more efficient. What? And it was like, I didn't even engage in that conversation, obviously, because when someone responds to you in that way, it just shows a fundamental lack of knowledge, like it's ignorance. So that's what I find is that if I talk about things that I see as issues in the way things are done in the hospital, there's usually like a flat on, no, this isn't an issue or you're the issue. And I'm like, oh, I definitely don't think that I'm the issue. And I definitely think things could change to be better. Mm. That's just the response that I get when I like speak up about, hey, and that's why I have to do things like this podcast. Um, To be fair, I've spoken to a lot of doctors who have these ideas of efficiency. And I do think sometimes like, not all the time, those ideas aren't actually realistic because the doctors don't have an understanding of organization level operations Mm -hmm. management and logistics and the complexity of trying to actually implement some of the Mm. things. So Mm. doctors often do have a very limited scope of understanding in terms of how organizations run. Having said that, there's still like pretty good ideas to explore yeah, at least or exactly. even think about. But no, instead, the only things that get clearance is, oh, let's use a different template for the whiteboard in the nursing station. <laughs> or let's, I don't know, let's print out some kind of, even like templated discharge summaries or things like that. I, I remember there was one of the departments, they were like, oh, I don't know about that. I don't know if that's going to be like best practice to use a template or whatever. It's like, dude, it's a freaking template, man. You know, it's, yeah. it's very hard for existing systems and practices to change or things to be and taken out or modified. Like, you know, there's like an interesting concept that's becoming 
thing. I can, I'm pretty out of the loop because I don't have anything to do with business. But I hear from people who work in business the idea of like agile thinking, rolling something out, getting feedback, and yeah. then very iterative changes like as you're like yeah. producing something. And I wonder if care systems are just so slow at changing things. Yeah. So I don't know if agile is a great method for hospitals to use. So just to make sure everyone that's listening is on the same page, like agile is essentially like fast iterative change, right? You have your hypothesis and then you have very efficient focused meetings to establish everyone's on the same page or assign roles. And then you go and then you work through it to get to a very fast product. It's really, really effective for software development to the point where no respecting software agency in the world is really going to not use agile methodologies. The only situations that agile can work is if the repercussions and consequences are negligible. Right. Yeah. yeah. So healthcare being a massive system and also the repercussions being number one, <laughs> potentially mega, but also so interwoven that it could be unpredictable. Yeah. Think thalidomide. Yeah. For those listening, yeah, thalidomide was, was like an anti-nausea medicine yeah. decades ago given to a lot of pregnant women. And then later on, a whole bunch of babies were born with very shortened limbs. Yeah, just a lot, like terrible, massive birth defects. Yeah. I think there are some things that could be rolled out in that way. Like, for example, if there's a if there's an app for communicating between doctors, that, that type of stuff where oh, the consequence is minimal. <laughs> yeah, because of this consequence, everything has to be done to like this perfect level of like safety. But the thing is that then you're always behind the curve. Yeah. Because by the time you figured out this is the great solution for this problem, the problem has now changed. So by the time you implement it and you get user testing real world pressures, yeah. it's not really realistic anymore. And now you have to go through this huge other change. And the problem is also, at least is the big problem in the US and in New Zealand, is that the, the software companies that are making these systems or that try to help with this, they have a really the high development. software stuff. Yeah, they've yeah. got a really high developer turnover. Yeah. So the developer that's working on the next iteration is not even the same developer that yeah. worked on the first iteration. So they're essentially relearning the whole platform from scratch, including why do they oh even need it? Oh my gosh. And so the way that in New Zealand, Orion Healthcare, the way that they try to do this, because I... I, I've met with a couple of the senior developers in Orion. I tried to scout some of them for the projects I was working on in the past. And I, and I <laughs> so you're trying to make the problem worse. <laughs> I, was try, I, I was actually working on something. Anyway, it was a, it's another story. But they told me about what the process is. And actually, it gets to the point where you've got these developers that only work on certain features, but they don't understand how the feature is actually going to be used so integrate in, with in practice. Else? Yeah. So there's a concept called journey mapping, which is about understanding the user experience. And you yeah. think about all the stakeholders and how they're all going to be using and interacting with it. But they only journey map for that single specific feature. So do they test it on people who would use the system, i.e. junior doctors? Basically, no. What? Um, they, have, they have a testing process at the time. That, maybe they've changed the last few years. But the, the testing process is they'll pick a few people that they think are representative. I think they use like the whoever's like managing or administrating or whatever. Oh, no. To, to go through <laughs> the idea, the wireframe concept of it to see, does this make sense? Do you think this will be effective? And then they use it. But the, the issue is actually, if you look at just the feature in itself, that's not where the main problem is. The main problems are in the integration of all the systems with each other and all the different features with each other, which is sometimes why when you look at something and you think, I'm looking at this, let's say a CT scan, I'd really love to be able to see the bloods now, but maybe it takes seven and a half clicks to get there. And like these tiny little things is because it's not as a big picture. So to overcome that, you actually need to have centralized development teams that are really on board for long periods of time. It requires a software companies to take a lot more accountability and ownership, but there's no incentive for them to do that because who, who else is going to develop it right now? There's pretty much the big players have, have big shares. 
So there isn't really any incentive. So I think it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. Oh man, because that was like probably one of the biggest hopes that clinicians had with this Tefatu order takeover is that we'd have a centralized like IT system where we can all look up like all the results for all the patients New Zealand wide. Because when you work somewhere that has people coming in from other areas, like for example, if you're working in Rotorua and you've got a whole bunch of people who've come for like, a, I don't know, like a, the mountain biking festival or something, they've come from Auckland, Wellington, South Island and stuff. And a bunch of them have had you know, a crash in the mountain bike race and you've got no information about them yeah. whatsoever. And they're not with anybody. So you don't know if they're taking like a blood thinner or something, maybe mm. it's, it, it really matters because it can be a life and death situation if you don't have that information with you. Yeah. When I heard about the whole merge, I don't know if anyone really had high hopes. I, mean, I think there was the optimistic aspect of it. Like maybe this is the start of something that could fix one up. thing. I thought the one thing would be like, yeah, maybe we'll have a centralized IT system, yeah. but even that. Because <laughs> to, to build a big system effectively with lots of moving components, you need to have someone that is helping to manage the project, like some kind of project leader or project owner who has deep understanding of the user experience for all of the stakeholders. And Ugh. if you don't have that, you need to have a panel of people that have genuine deep experiential insight into all of that sort of stuff. And you need to be working together very closely with developers in a long-term relationship. Like that has to be a unit. No real successful software anywhere in the world operates without having that in place. It's just like a fundamental prerequisite. So as far as I know, that is definitely not the software development practice that's being used in New Zealand from the developers that I've spoken to. And some of them have been like team leaders. And until that is fixed, it doesn't almost even matter like how the system is going to change. If a lot of that is re relying on IT infrastructure or the different architecture that's used, I just don't think that's going to change. So your main business at the moment is I can study, yeah. right? What meaning do you find from your business I can study? So what we do is we teach people how to learn effectively, right? And we work with a wide variety of ages. So different meanings that come from different age groups because they've all got slightly different problems. The fundamental problem is that they don't have hyper-effective learning strategies that are cognitively optimized. Pretty much no one does really. But the thing that they're experiencing, the struggle they're having is quite different. But one thing I realized very early on before I started I Can Study is that a lot of the beliefs you form about yourself what, who you are, what you're capable of, your potential, what you can or cannot achieve, and how even some, to some extent, your sense of self-worth as well, a lot of that is actually attached to your perspective of how well you can learn. Your experiences through school, how well you've done exams, how well you've performed, how you're struggling compared to your friends when you're trying to learn something, your ability to work with new information, you've studied this thing, you're trying to learn that. All of those things feed into your sense of like self-belief. And I think the thing that really flicked it for me to start thinking, this is something that I find enough fulfillment and that I actually want to do this full time, is when I was doing these deep consultations with students, where I'd sit with them for an hour, a couple hours, and would go through every single thing that they're doing in terms of their learning process. I'd say, okay, here's the issue. This is the reason why your entire life you've had these negative experiences. Like your base intelligence is actually good enough. It's just being throttled because your technique is garbage. You just replace them and you're going to get better results. Good. You've hit your outcome. But they started crying. And they started breaking down. And initially I was very confused. I was like, oh shit, did I say something wrong? <laughs> not empathetic enough or what, what was going on? But I realized it was because it was the first time in their life where they truly felt that they could give themselves the hope and the belief that they could do more, that they were better, that they were worth more. A lot of these people had these high aspirations and as they were going, they thought, Maybe I'm just not that good. Some of them have lived like that for years, like single parents that I'll talk to that are trying to 
switch careers into something else. And they think, I don't know if I can do it. I've got a kid that I'm raising. I'm, I want to go back to uni. I never, I was never good at uni. Can I go through and I do a whole new course? And can I really succeed at this thing? And why do you think you can't do it? I don't have confidence in my ability to learn and adapt and apply these skills to the level that I need to. And when they're equipped with that, their whole view on themselves and what they can do in their lives just completely changes. And that gave me more fulfillment than the type of impact that I was making as a doctor. I get a lot more thank yous and gratitude <laughs> bet, from yeah. the people that I help. I got what, one thank you card as a, as a and I given think I I've had any thank as, you cards, but I guess you just don't really expect it because you don't get it. You don't really expect it. Yeah, you just, this is a thankless job. It is what it is. <laughs> yeah. And if someone thanks you, you just, I'm about to cry. It's, oh my God, is someone actually thanking me for the work that I'm doing? Whereas, especially in New Zealand, like a lot of patients have the sense of like entitlement. Like it's my right, so just give it to me. And if it's not good enough, like it has to be perfect. And if it's not perfect, then it's like, you suck. Whereas consumers don't really expect that. They think I'm paying this much. I expect this much value. And when you give more value, they're like, oh, wow, I didn't expect that. So oh, do thank you, think you so a, much. A whole private healthcare system is the answer then. I'm going to not comment on that. <laughs> I, that's, yeah. Okay. I don't, yeah. So, what makes like a bad learning technique versus a good one? That's a good question. It's very hard for someone to think about what is a good learning technique compared to a bad one if you don't know what the alternative is. Something that most people can do. Just think, why do, what do I need this knowledge for? What level of mastery do I need this knowledge for? Do I need this purely for literally just this upcoming exam where I just need to like bleh and then it's just there? This is the number that they want. This is the dosage that they want. Or is this something that is more important for me? Do I need to be able to engage in a discussion about it? Do I need to talk to a radiologist about the problem? Do I need to have a high level discussion or problem solve in a complex way? Do I need to use it for figuring out an ideal management pathway? So it's not enough to just think I've covered the content because then it's a wholly inaccurate sense of learning efficiency because the outcome is meaningless in that case. You only measure the outcome as the level of knowledge you need it to be at the level of retention you need it to be. So Let's say you need something that's a high level of knowledge mastery, but you only need that for this coming week. Let's say you're at a conference, you want to impress a bunch of people. So you're going to learn about their research articles and their latest publications so you can have a good conversation. And they're like, wow, this person knows a lot. And now you've got like a plus one secret point on the training program application. So after you've gone through your learning and you think, well, how long did it take for me to learn that? You assess your level of competency with that knowledge. You're making a mental note. Oh, I'm not really able to use that knowledge very freely or you I able to use that knowledge very freely, or I'm feeling like I've only really learned just the definition of it, but I find it really hard to bring it all together. You just keep monitoring that to see, okay, a week later, a month later, whatever the relevant time frame is, do I still have that required level of knowledge? And you see how fast it goes down. And if that is going down really quickly, then again, that's not very efficient because it wasn't staying very long. This is funny because, you know, I was studying for like the pediatric exam, right? And it's a very broad like exam because it's for all people who want to do pediatric training, depending, no matter like what kind of like specialty you want to do. And probably I'll end up doing like pediatric emergency. And I'm like, I don't think I will ever really need to know all the like specific gene mutations for all the specific weird and wonderful like disorders and all that. And I'm like, gosh, okay, as soon as the exams are done, like this, this information is going to fall out of my brain. And mm. I don't even know why I had to like this yeah. in the first place. But you still need to do it. In the, in, yeah. And yeah, so different techniques produce different results. There are some techniques that allow you to reach a high level of mastery in a short period of time with high level of retention. Those techniques obviously are kind of like the holy grail, so right? So what are, what are the good techniques? It's really extensive to get into. <laughs> if I explain it, you will never have really even heard of it. Right, They're right, not right. mainstream whatsoever. It requires actually fundamental cognitive retraining and your habitual 
like learning processes. It takes months to actually get to that point. And how do you know that this works? The funny thing actually is that I, when I was thinking about these techniques, it was purely for my own personal yeah. benefit. So I wasn't thinking about creating techniques to sell them eventually. I, I know it works now because we collect data on the learners that go through our program. And so we see very high rates of success. We've actually just recently finished our latest analysis on our students. And it's shown there's a over 90% success rate. And the longer you're committed to the program, the success rate actually just continues to go up. So for people that have been through our program and have gone through to roughly, I'd say 60%, like maybe two thirds of the way through the program, almost 100% have achieved a doubling of their efficiency, which means they're able to reach a high level of mastery at a at the necessary level of retention and half the amount of time that it will have normally have taken them. How, how do you measure success? Yeah, so we're actually surveying them. We use performance data in terms of their actual, like if you had a recent assessment, mm. what was your assessment? There's no direct observership of learning because you, you can't see what's happening at a cognitive level. You're only able to see proxy measures of it. And interestingly, what's been found and there's actually been research on this directly, is that a learner self-reporting on how they perceive their learning process is actually highly correlated to their metacognition and performance. So that actually says that literally just asking someone qualitatively how you feel about learning, how confident you are with your learning, how much control you feel like you've got is an extremely valid metric. So but do, do they feel more confident because they're better at learning or are they better at learning because they're more confident? Both. And that's a good thing. It's actually a, it's actually a positive feedback cycle. That's the thing that I was saying about sense of identity and self-belief that when you perform better, you feel like maybe you're better. And then you learn more about why you struggled in the past and how you can actually tactically fix it. And now it's not part of you. It's just the method that you're Because what using. do you think about like streaming, like within schools? Oh, a class streaming. Yeah, yeah. it's a very uh, contentious topic. Um, what school did you come from? I came from a school called Burnside in, in Christchurch. Uh-huh. And there was an accelerated group, accelerated class. Were you, you know, in that group? For most of the subjects, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And th- this is a very complicated topic. And the more you learn about it, the more complicated it gets. Because there are some people that are very purist about streaming is a bad thing. And there's certainly a lot of research that supports that view. And I do tend to lean more towards that side. The problem is that there isn't really the alternative that's viable, that's in place. The reason streaming was created in the first place is to support the students that are able to operate a higher level of deep processing and that they have a higher acumen for that particular subject. So the argument is actually, do they have a higher acumen because you're giving them more support? Because you've told them their whole lives that they're geniuses. That that they are A and then someone else is, is B. The research is at the point where it's like, we know pretty definitively that whole labeling thing is not good for people that aren't labeled at the top. So we should probably get away with that. Because you, you've worked with quite a few teachers, haven't you, with helping them- Yeah, teachers and schools and things Upskill well. and their, yeah. their ability to educate. What Do you ask them about what their feelings are on like, oh, yeah. streaming and stuff? What do they say? I've never really met a teacher that really likes it. I think all teachers are pretty practical, Yeah. but I've never talked to a teacher that thought they had the perfect solution for it either. Like they understood what the issue is. Some of them wish that they use a different system like some other schools used and that's totally fair and maybe they should use that system, but it's never like this consensus of, yeah, we should really be doing this. Why aren't we doing this? Could things like streaming or non-streaming just be simply solved by just having more teachers in smaller class sizes? No, I don't think so. You don't think so? It's mathematically unscalable and unsustainable to have that. And there's a number of reasons. Number one is that there is more money and more investment and more actual just general interest and focus on research on learning and teaching than there is on changing teaching practice. And so as a result, it's like the GP issue right now that yes, having more teachers in smaller classrooms can help, but we've got a growing population. And second of all, 
The time that it takes to train a teacher to the level that you want them to be to get teachers to that point is never going to match pace with the needs of learners and the growth. So if you had a huge drive over the next 10 years to just smash out triple the number of teachers and you cut down classrooms and you did all this stuff, it would probably be all good for five, 10 years. But then you'd have essentially the same issue because right now classrooms are already smaller. The classrooms are now deviating towards 24, 18, 27 range where it used to be like 30 to 50. So it's already smaller, but the problems are still there. So I don't think that's a worthwhile investment because it's too short term to be worth it. The ROI is not there. The other issue is that there's more and more pressure placed on teachers to produce perfectly suitable education. As learning science grows, we understand that learners are different. That places pressure on teachers to be optimizing for all of those differences. So before we thought, oh, learners are different in let's say two ways. And now we think learners are different in 400 ways. So now teachers don't have to think about two things, they have to think about 400 things. That increases lesson planning time, that increases pressure, that increases the training time. So you see how that actually feeds into it becoming unsustainable. My view personally is that the solution to this, and this is why I do the work that I do, is that more ownership needs to be given to the learner. Teachers need to be put in a position where they don't need to deliver perfectly optimum teaching for every single learner, because that's not representative of reality anyway. What teachers need to be in a position to do is to facilitate the thinking and learning process of the learners and learners need to be directly and explicitly taught more about learning self-management and self-regulation processes. And so if learners are able to optimize their own learning more effectively, then teachers have less burden placed on them. And then now you've actually solved the problem at the root because the quality of education is managed both by the teacher and the student, whereas right now increasingly more and more emphasis is placed on the teacher, which means that teachers are already overworked. They're just getting more and more overworked and learners are becoming more and more passive, which actually makes the problem worse. There needs to just be more focus on what learners can do to help themselves when the teaching is not perfect. So they can one day meet in the middle because right now it's just way too one-sided. If you'd like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Do you think having like private tutoring and stuff or these techniques that are sort of the middle to the higher level of thinking, do you think they would end up perpetuating inequities further? I don't think that, first of all, the way private tutoring is done now is just not really effective. It's really making things worse. What makes you think that? First of all, the skills and techniques that I teach, like very novel. So there's no one else that actually teaches them anywhere globally. That's the reason why we're global. Private tutors definitely not teaching them. I, I talk to a lot of private tutors. They're like, they get very offended. They're like, oh, I teach my students how to learn more effectively. I'm like, oh, so tell me, what are you teaching them? And then it's just like simple crap. It's just like <laughs> cookie cutter, like fortune cookie level sort of stuff. And it's like, okay, cool. You can feel good about yourself or whatever. But at the end of the day, the fundamental issue is like, why did they need you in the first place? Right. The I can study kind of thing. It's more about teaching people how to learn for themselves in a way that's more you know, yeah. efficient. So we have a than- massive issue in terms of recurring revenue because our students get to the point where they no longer need us very quickly because they're able to learn <laughs> and they don't they're, like they're not externally this dependent. Like a very anymore. smart business model. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, this is not a popular opinion, but I personally think private tutoring is kind of a scam. I don't think it's a scam that's malicious. There are some companies that are malicious, like they're very well aware of the fact they're not delivering value and that all they're doing is trying to just profit for the sake of profit. But I think as a societal level thing, I think private tutoring is really making a lot of problems worse and including with inequities, 
and issues with that, which is why the way that we see it is that as a private organization, one of the ways that we can affect change is by being able to number one, produce research and fund research that shows that this is effective, working with teachers in a way that's scalable and disseminating this information and eventually getting to the point where, honestly, I've worked with like lower decile, more poorly funded schools, and I've worked with elitely private schools. And the schools that are struggling want to do what the elitely private schools are doing. So those are the people that are already able to afford some of the stuff that we're doing. Yes, in the short term, maybe it produces inequity because the people that we're able to reach are the people that can afford it. And we try to mitigate that with scholarships and other things. But look, at the end of the day, like it's never really going to be enough. But if these top schools and these top students are doing it and we can make a case and we can say, hey, don't you have some FOMO here? Don't you want to do this yourself? Then that will allow the schools to start picking up traction. And then that's where we can really make, I think, more of a scalable difference by actually changing the system at its core. So what's it like when you are working with these low decile schools? It's very frustrating. What's frustrating about it? A lot of things are frustrating about it. In some schools, the leadership is way out of touch. Senior leadership is way out of touch. Some of the leadership don't have teaching experience. They don't know what it's like. What are they out of touch with? Everything, like literally everything. Some of the senior leadership that I talk to, I just think you don't, they've convinced themselves that they care about the students, but they, what they really care about is just not getting complaints from their parents. And also in a lot of these poorer schools, like the parents, their standards are really low. As long as the kid is at school some of the time, they're just happy enough. So there is not really much of an incentive. Fortunately, the majority of the time, this, the leadership does actually care and they're motivated and the teachers care and they're motivated. Let's say that you've got a student that's coming into school and their attendance is pretty poor, but their attendance is poor not because they're not motivated, but because of the fact that they have to work and they have to look after their, I don't know, 10 siblings. And like, uh, I remember there was a school principal that told me about one of their students and this student had just below 80% attendance rate. So they weren't going to be eligible to graduate. And so talk to the student. And the reason that the attendance was so low was because every morning they have to wake up and they're the ones that looking after like their seven or eight siblings. And they're actually taking them to school, like one by one, all of them. And then they're getting to school or by then it's like already too late. So their attendance is really poor because of the fact that they have these other familial commitments. And you're not going to tell someone to screw your siblings, just come to school. So how do you deal with that issue? Well, to deal with that issue, you actually have to be working in the homes of these people. That particular kid that, that I'm talking about right now, his parents, he had both parents, but they were working like night day shifts, like alternating. So there was never any parent at home at the same time ever. And usually if the parent is home, they're sleeping. So they never got any of that family contact. They never had like dinner table discussions about, hey, how's school going? What do you want to do with your life? They never had like kind of the casual conversations that you tend to have with role model or leadership figures because they're too busy just working. That's like all they're doing. And so the school is in a position where they are the only ones that know about this and can do something about it. So you might go to this, the home and try to talk to the parents about it, but what are the parents going to do? What can they really realistically change there? So then what's the solution to this problem? And then you've got a teacher that's come in that wants to make a difference to this kid's life. You're screwed. Everything about this situation is screwed. You can't teach someone out of a shitty situation. You get the young teachers that are very motivated and they really want to make a difference. Most of them don't last. Either their energy or their motivation doesn't last or they move to another school where they feel like they're more empowered to create a change in their students. And maybe the students are creating a change in of a higher income level, but for them, it's I'm done. Like I've done my time trying to do something here and it's just, it, it doesn't move. So 
There are a lot of really deeply seated issues there. I, I'm just touching the surface right now. Yeah, there's so much. Do you still run Justin the Tudor? I'm closing it down at the end of the year, actually, because I don't see a future for it. I've really explored as many avenues as I could. The last year was an experiment for me. What I did is I said, I have a certain amount of money in the bank and I'm just going to run the business. Because what did you try and do with Justin the Tudor? Initially, the idea was just like, let's make a business so I can make a side buck but in the early stages. But then the, when I incorporated it into a nonprofit, the idea was, can we provide like equitable education access to the school. So we worked and partnered with these schools that were like the lowest funded schools. And I got to know a lot of the teachers there and I did a fair amount of work. We ran mentoring programs, we ran programs and courses, special access workshops, online courses, like a lot of stuff for years and years. And then we worked with the district health boards to try to create more incentives. And there's one time where I was in the peak of COVID, we, we had this meeting with the district health board to say, let's run a workshop for our kids through like hundreds of students in some of the poorest schools in the city. And we were gonna run it in, I think it was like October was when the date was. And we started having these conversations in March. It was a workshop, right? And I was like, cool, I'm ready to do it. I sent them through the thing. I was like, here's the workshop. This is what I wanna do. And I did it at just ridiculously below cost. So I didn't charge for any of my time. I didn't charge for any of my planning. I didn't charge for the course. And some of the elements were gonna require my staff to help and provide ongoing support. And I undercut the cost price. So I was willing to take a loss at that. I was going to charge them like $10 an hour or something for my staff. And all in all, running these workshops, I think it was going to cost the district health board like $2,500 or something, like tiny amount. And what was and the purpose of the workshop for the DHBs? I think the purpose of it was to help these COVID-affected students to have a better chance right. of entering into- uh, Like healthcare-related jobs? Yeah, 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 healthcare-related. Yeah. Healthcare and so originally it was going to be a series of workshops. I think it was like two or three workshops spread throughout the year, but then it was a complicated time and schools were struggling and I understandably like things got pushed back. So it ended up being, let's just do one really intensive workshop in October. Uh, let's run that. And then around like September, they were like, oh, it's just too late now. And they just scrapped it. But the thing is, okay, I can understand in the peak when everything was like going crazy and schools were really struggling and whatever, but the workshop was there. The program was there. The only thing that needed to happen was you needed to get people together into like this place to run the actual event. And that's all. They had the network. The teachers were all on board, everything. And there's one time I sent them an email. I said, here's my thoughts on what to do. What do you think? And it took them two months to respond. And the response was, we should discuss this further. That was it. After two months, there was a response. So we had a meeting and we talked about it and we were like, okay, what's the next step? The next step was for me to get in touch with the Pacifica team leader to discuss how we're going to roll it out to the schools. So then the Pacifica team leader was like, oh, cool, cool. I'll send you an invite. We'll have a meeting sometime early next week. And it took a month to just get the invite for the meeting to be scheduled. For all of those reasons, like it didn't happen. And then so I just saw, oh, screw it, I'll just do it myself. So in two weeks, we just organized the whole event and we just did it ourselves. Two weeks with a team of two part-timers that were uni students and myself. And I barely did anything and we just ran it. So it's just like little things like this where I don't know if it's a funding issue or whatever, or the incentives are not there for the people to just step up their game or whatever it is, but it just wasn't there. So I did that type of work for, this is the seventh year of doing that. And this year I thought, you know what? I'm just gonna try to run this at a total loss. So I ran this experiment to see if it's financially viable. I said, you can just pretty much pay the minimum amount just to cover the cost of only what you're receiving. I'm not going to charge any of the overheads, any of the administration, any of the anything. I didn't even cover the tax for it. And I just said, is it possible to charge only the minimum just to pay for staff and not myself? I didn't pay myself at all. Is it possible to run a business that way and try to achieve an impact aiming purely for equity? And anyone that 
fell below an income threshold, they just got for free. And it just didn't work. And it just, what do you mean it didn't work? It didn't work because the incentive for people to engage in it just wasn't there. Because the people that needed the help most, the people that could afford to pay for it, they thought, oh, it's too cheap, therefore it must not be good. So they would not use it. And the people that couldn't afford it, they weren't intrinsically motivated to use it anyway because there was other stuff going on in their lives. We still got a couple hundred people that ended up using it, but it, it just wasn't enough and it wasn't sustain sustainable. So my idea was that if that worked, I was just going to run it essentially like on autopilot just to serve a societal need. But it's, it's really interesting because yeah. it sounds like this is a thing that on the surface sounds like a really great idea. Let's give these people free mentoring, free tutoring, whatever to get, because yeah. I think a lot of what you- Almost all of it was free. We did almost a million dollars of free services over the last seven years. And a lot of it was trying to help people get into like healthcare yeah. as well. Just, a lot of people or just to get advice. Into, yeah, and a lot yeah. of people to get into medicine. But if it, when it comes down to it, if the people that you're trying to help are already so bogged down by all these other like societal system, systemic issues, like these interventions are not necessarily helpful if the simple things aren't looked after. Yeah. It's not that it's not helpful, it's that it's not helpful at scale. Yeah. So I haven't experimented with that. I thought if I can't do it at scale, maybe we can just focus on like a few key individuals to become peer role models and pillars in their community but it's just too much. Like the amount of attention that a single person needs when they're really in a bad situation to get over that is just, it's, it's really one of those things that I think it has to require a system level, government level, normal distribution moving change because it is at an individual level way too hard to address. Like we're talking, I don't know, like- it's so hard, right? Cause like- Hundreds you know of thousands of dollars a year per person of intervention to to even have a chance. Because yeah. a lot of the stuff that we try and do, we think, oh, this is like a great idea, mm. but- we have to recognize sometimes a bit of middle-class thinking for middle-class interventions that may not really help those people who yeah. are struggling the most. Yeah. I felt the exact same thing because I felt I was very in the know about inequities and fairness and justice and Woke. things. <laughs> yeah. I felt that I was very clued up on the yeah. idea of social disparity and what the implications are. And I, you know, very left-leaning in that sense, which is why obviously I wanted to try to do something in that space. And then when I spoke to the community leaders, I was like, oh yeah, because they, they, even they were like, oh yeah, this is a good idea. This is a good idea. And then sometimes talking to the parents and you just think, damn, I was way over pitch on this. There's one time that I ran this little meeting with a group of families about, about their kids and like what their path is going to look like and therefore what they should think about in high school. It was pretty like a low level discussion. I just said, here's what you'd have to do in high school. This is the pathways available for you to enter into healthcare. This is the standard that you need to read. This is what your week is going to look like. So in high school, you should probably start trying to do a little bit of this stuff to try to make that transition a little less brutal. And at the end of it, one of the parents came up to me and they said, thank you so much for the talk. What I realized is that yeah, studying is very important. And that was it. That was just their take-home message. It wasn't even studying is very important. It was like, yeah, students need to study A. Eh? It was something like that. And I just thought, man, the baseline perspective that they had come from was just the students themselves already need a lot of help with their perspective and their, how they're thinking about and planning and you know what they're doing in preparation. After that meeting, I was just like, I'm probably just not going to do this again. Because I just did not feel equipped to be able to deal with that level of knowledge disparity. Like I'd have to have done a whole course just for the parents to get to the point where they can engage in the conversation about how to prepare. Yeah. There are a lot of people who are doing like 
good work like you. And I, I'm a very big passionate person about, yes, a good public health system is where we need to mm. invest in stuff. But sometimes I feel like it puts me and probably you as well at risk of like burnout because we work so hard to try and make these big changes. I've now the stance that I adopt with I Can Study is that I just go for the early adopters. There are always people out there that are really keen to to take on whatever initiative that you're pitching to them. And those are the people that are ready and willing to be helped. And those early adopters are what creates the change in normative beliefs. The people around them start following what these early adopters are doing and that becomes more and more widespread. And that is when you get widespread change. And so now I just focus on early adopters. I've got all these people like, seriously, if I scroll through like comments on TikTok, it's just like, my brain decreases by an IQ point per second of reading comments. It's just, man, just think about it for four more seconds. But those are not the people that are ready and willing to be helped. So I don't spend much time and energy on them because I've got like thousands of people that are really resonating with the message, understand the perspective and want that type of change. And I suspect that's probably the case with any of these issues. Like maybe the change that we need to make with the public health system doesn't start at the public health system. Where's the early adopter for the change we want to make? Maybe that's an idea for the people that are look, looking at transitioning out of medicine. Yeah, sometimes I wonder about the healthcare system and as time goes by and we become better at researching new new diseases, new treatments, etc. We put all this money into treating diseases at the hospital level, but do we need to be putting more money into treating like the environment and stuff, well-being? Because all we're doing is treating illness and mm. not helping people with yeah, well-being. Yeah. I call it the hospitals are like a well-being exchange. <laughs> What do you mean by that? So doctors come in and exchange their well-being for the patients. <laughs> you just, it's just converts. And there's a great conversion rate there. Like one unit of doctor well-being translates to like 100 patients of well-being. But it's just it's the way that it, it runs. Oh, it doesn't sound like a very sustainable business model if you ask me. It's not. If you ask anyone, <laughs> literally anyone with a brain cell could tell you that it's not. Okay, one, yeah. one last final question. Okay, if you could transport yourself to anywhere in the world and in any time in the past or the present, where would you like transport yourself like right now? I think you asked me this in the first time we recorded <laughs> this, I think, because I remember being asked this before and I don't think it was someone else that asked me. I like where we are now. I don't think I'd move back in the past because... There are a lot of things that I don't like about modern kind of where things have happened, like capitalism has taken technology to the point where I'm pretty sure it's artificially creating ADHD. I, like, I'm pretty sure that, and that's actually like an established sort of theory that's being studied I right mean, now. I 100% like agree with that. It's, it's a little contentious. Like, I'm very <laughs> hesitant to say something like that because it's such a, like a woo-woo hippie kind of thing to say, oh, technology is like hijacking our minds. Diagnoses aren't real. It's all fake. But when it comes to ADHD, like I've definitely noticed, yeah, there's something going on. So there's a lot of things I don't like about like modern society. But if I think about going back 20 years ago, man, we didn't have fiber internet back then. If I think about going back like 50 years ago, I don't want to die of polio or something. Like there's just so many things. If I think about going back to, I don't know, when we were living in these like nice communities and villages and life was like a little bit simpler. And it's like, I think about how nice that would be. Man, if I want that, I could just go on a hike. <laughs> or I, like, I can go camping if I want that. But I don't want to have to live with the fact that toothpaste hasn't been invented yet. I'm going to die from- No sunscreen. There's no sun I'm going to die from, I don't know. Diphtheria. Like a, yeah, like I get a, a broken ankle and I die. You know, I get a broken ankle and I'm dead now. So I where don't would you want, want to go then? In the prison? Where would you want to go? I think in the prison right now, I'm, I'm pretty happy being where I am. I like a lot of things about New Zealand. Maybe I'd go to the South Island if, if I had to change. I like the big mountains. I like the crisp atmosphere in the morning. 
I guess if I wanted to go anywhere in the world that I wanted to because I don't have a fixed contract, I don't have to ask for leave, which is fantastic. And I choose to be here, so I like it. Very good. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on the Rolling Door Syndrome, Justin. Thanks for having me on the second time. <laughs> Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and to titter to your Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Thank you.